Hey sister, this is Misty Williams, founder of HealingRosie.com, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Rosie Radio. Tune in to find clarity, direction, and hope for your healing. New episodes drop every Tuesday. We created this show to empower you to regain control of your life and feel like yourself again. Yes, sister, it is possible. So if you've been hanging around the Healing Rosie community for any length of time, you have probably heard a lot of chatter about thyroid. And there's a reason for that. And if you've dealt with flabby, foggy, and fatigued at all in your journey, which most likely if you're listening, that's part of the reason why is that you've confronted these issues as you're getting older. Sometimes it gets blamed on menopause or perimenopause. Um, Sometimes it gets blamed on aging, right? Um, But I first ran into thyroid issues myself when I was 35. So technically not in perimenopause and um, technically not at an age where it can be blamed on aging. I had completed my two surgeries that I've talked a lot about, the second surgery to fix the first botched surgery and everything that ensued after coming unraveled, dealing with brain fog and fatigue like crazy. And finally went back to my primary care doctor to figure out what was going on and pushed for more lab work. Like, let's let's figure out what's happening. I'm experiencing these symptoms that I have not experienced before and I'm I want to get my life back. And after pushing for a while, she finally said to me, Misty, even if I did run your labs, I wouldn't know what they meant, which was gutting and shocking. And she went ahead and referred me to an endocrinologist in her practice um, to take a look at what was happening in my labs and see if she could help. So while I was sitting in the endocrinologist's office, she told me that my labs were probably normal. We would run some more and see if anything else turned up. And she came over and started tapping on my neck and said, Misty, I I think you might have some nodules on your thyroid. We went back and did an ultrasound. And sure enough, I had thyroid nodules and heard then what I heard when they diagnosed me with endometriosis. We don't know what causes it. Um, We we can keep watching it, right? You can do surgery. So uh, thyroid nodules, the first time I even knew that thyroids could have nodules on them. And over the course of the next five years or so, experienced my thyroid actually tanking. I know now that a big contributor to this was I had metals improperly drilled from my teeth two years later. I didn't know it at the time, of course. And 45-pound weight gain in about three or four months. And um, the doctors put me on hormone therapy, but never got to the root of why I was gaining all this weight and found out five years later that it was because of the mercury fillings being improperly drilled. And likely at that time, I also picked up mold, which didn't get diagnosed for me until 2021. So I've been dealing with severe toxicity and what I saw in my labs over about a five-year period was my thyroid truly did tank. It got down to 2.1. My free T3 was down to 2.1 and I was feeling really exhausted, had the afternoon slumps where I just felt like my energy was bottoming out and I couldn't keep my eyes open. So today we're going to talk more about thyroid health because this is a topic that I feel like almost all the women in our community, when they test properly, find out they have some kind of thyroid dysfunction that needs to be addressed. And toxicity is a huge, huge part of why we're getting sick and experiencing Um, a lot of HPA axis dysfunction, but especially seeing our thyroid affected. So today we're going to talk to my friend, Ina. 
about thyroid health and Hashimoto's and your thyroid type. And um, we're going to get a good education on how our thyroid works, what we can do to um, to see for ourselves um, what's happening with our thyroid. One of the things that I have found really empowering is being able to know what optimal lab values are so I can look at my labs for myself and see. Um, and if you have not downloaded the Healing Rosie Lab Tracker, you will find um, optimal lab values in the lab tracker at healingrosie.com that will really support this conversation today. But Ina Toppler-Mooney is a board-certified clinical nutritionist with over 17 years of experience in clinical practice and the founder of Complete Nutrition and Wellness. She is also the host of the Health Mysteries Solved podcast and the educator behind the Thyroid Mysteries Solved step-by-step program. Welcome, Ina. Hi, Misty. I'm so excited to be here and share all this information with your listeners. Thank you for yeah. having me. Well, I'm super excited for you to be here. And this thyroid topic is a big one. I still have women after all of the talks we've done on thyroid health. We'll post in the Healing Rosie Facebook group that here's the symptoms I'm experiencing. And they all, from my perspective, mirror thyroid dysfunction. And you ask them, we had your thyroid checked. Oh, yes, my thyroid's checked. The doctor told me it was normal. Do you know for yourself it was normal? Did you check your own labs? What labs were run? And we uncovered that the proper labs weren't run. And they don't really know how their thyroid is functioning. And very often they will go have the proper labs come and then come back into the group and be like, oh my gosh, here's what I'm seeing in my labs. What do I do? Because my doctor says it's normal and it's fine. So this is like a beat your head against the wall issue for patients who are not as blessed as you to have this amazing background and thyroid health and all this insight into what we need to do. So why don't you start unpacking for us? Let's kind of start at the beginning. I would love for you just to educate everybody a little bit on what the thyroid is, um, how it's connected to our, our hormones overall, and maybe some common ways that our thyroid gets compromised that creates these issues for us as we get older. Absolutely. So our thyroid, very small little butterfly gland right here controls so much. So I think that most of us probably already know that thyroid has something to do with our metabolism because that's a very talked about thing, right? And so yes, your thyroid controls your metabolism. It also controls your temperature. So when you get hot or cold, so it regulates that. But additionally, it literally controls so many more things. So we need thyroid hormone from our head to our toes. So our hair, for example, right? I mean, who has experienced hair loss, thinning hair, dry hair, coarse hair, especially hair that, you know, you know, it's like, wait, this is my hair. Like something is different. I, you know, people tell me all the time, you know, I have half the hair that I had five years ago, right? Or my hair, the texture, it just, it's like frizzy and dry and like, it just doesn't sit the same, right? So your thyroid, you need enough thyroid hormone for your hair to grow, to be, you know, supple to be flowy, to just be healthy. The same thing with our skin, right? Because it controls your temperature, but also controls moisture levels. So skin that is dry, um, you know, if there's, you know, rashes on the skin, the thyroid has a lot to do with that. And I often ask people, you know, do you have dry skin? And they say, oh, no. I said, well, can I ask you a question? Do you put lotion on when you get out of the shower? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I didn't put lotion on, my skin would fall off. I'm like, well, that actually means you have dry skin, right? So 
That's really, really important. Now, the next thing that people don't always think about is the gut. And I know that in your community, you guys talk so much about gut because that's the center of so many things. And gut health is important for the rest of our body. And many people already know about the microbiome and the good and the bad bugs. But what people may not realize is that, you know, we talk about leaky gut a lot, right? So leaky gut is that intestinal lining and it can become permeable. And when it becomes permeable, we can have food sensitivities and a lot of other issues. And when we talk about gut, you know, there's a lot of um, support, like people may know about uh, drinking bone broth, right? Or taking glutamine. Those are wonderful to feel, to heal the gut. But here's the thing, what actually controls the lining in the gut? Your thyroid. So if you don't have enough thyroid hormone, you're not going to have a nice barrier. So you can take glutamine until glutamine is coming out of your nose, right? You'll be <laughs> healing it and then you'll be breaking it up when you don't have enough thyroid hormone. And then speaking of membranes, right? There is a lining, a membrane around the brain. It's called the blood-brain barrier. So same thing, you need enough thyroid hormone to support that barrier. That barrier needs to be intact. if there's permeability there. Well, guess what? Things that we're taking in, right? Could be metals. It could be other toxins. They're coming in. And then hello, brain fog, right? Like there's going to be inflammation in the brain because things are getting into the brain that are not supposed to. And yes, again, there's vitamins, there's minerals, there's things you could do to help to support, protect your brain. But if you don't have thyroid hormone, then that barrier is not going to be as intact as it needs to be. And then of course, going back to digestion from a motility perspective, when we don't have enough thyroid hormone, we can be more prone to constipation and everything in the body is very connected, right? So when one thing happens, there's usually a bunch of different things that happen down the line. So if we are constipated and constipated doesn't mean that you don't go to the bathroom, you know, for seven days, right? If you're not going every day, that in my book is considered constipation or you might be going every day, but you know, you get those little pellets, like they look like deer poop. That is also constipation. So you could be going every day, but if it's just tiny little pellets, it's not really all coming out. So then if we think about what happens down the line, right? Well, if we're not moving our bowels, that means the toxins aren't getting out. So they're getting reabsorbed back in, which means then we become more toxic. And as you mentioned, misty toxicity is such a big part of why the thyroid can become off. And then on top of that, if we look at other hormones, like for estrogen, for example, we need estrogen. And every day we produce a certain amount of estrogen. That estrogen then has to get metabolized and excreted out of the body and detoxified. And the biggest way that it does it is through the bowels. If we're backed up because our thyroid is not working as well, then our estrogen then gets reabsorbed. And then we have the extra estrogen from yesterday plus the estrogen we produce from today. And we get something called estrogen dominance. Estrogen dominance means there's more estrogen than progesterone, which causes its own host of symptoms. But from a thyroid perspective, estrogen dominance can slow down a specific type of the thyroid, which then makes our free hormones, which we'll get into in more detail, but they, it makes it not as absorbable. And so, right, it's like the thyroid affects one thing, which then affects something else, which affects something else. And then it goes back to thyroid and then it's this vicious cycle and we get this perfect storm. Yeah, one of the things you're saying that I just wanna highlight here is a lot of times we, we think of our issues being a thing. So I'm hypothyroid or I have SIBO or, you know, there's, there's one thing that we need to fix in our bodies, right? So that we are feeling better. And I've seen it over and over in our community that women have a gut issue 
and they go on hormone therapy and their gut issues go away. So for example, there's a woman in our community who had SIBO. She's like our little resident SIBO expert. Okay. She has beat SIBO back so many times. She knows all the tricks that work for SIBO. And as soon as she went to a doctor to have her hormones optimized, I believe she took thyroid hormone and her sex hormones, her SIBO went away. She has not had a SIBO flare in years because she fixed her hormone problem, right? So if you think your problem is SIBO and you're isolating, like I need to fix the SIBO and you're doing all the SIBO protocols, right? To beat the SIBO back, you're not looking at your body more holistically and seeing what's happening with your hormones, then you miss a huge healing opportunity. And instead of actually healing, you're just beating things back. So this is a really important conversation because hormones affect everything in the body. Mm -hmm. Just as you mentioned, you have brain fog. There's a huge hormonal component. You have gut issues. There's a huge hormonal component. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Super important conversation. It goes the other way also, right? Where if you don't have enough thyroid hormone and you're backed up, a lot of times also then you may not have enough hydrochloric acid because that's all controlled by the thyroid as well. So you can actually be more prone to SIBO or to H. pylori or some of these other infections. So a lot of times it really has to be addressed together. And often, you know, the thyroid kind of has to come first even before some of the other things. They're all important, but it's just a matter of putting it in the right, like step-by-step way. Right, sequencing it all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I was going to say the other big thing that people don't always think about is our mood, right? So anxiety, depression, obviously there's so many different reasons for that. There's circumstantial things. There are things that are going on in our life and our stress, but there's also the neurotransmitter component that the thyroid controls. So, you know, sometimes, and again, you know, there's a time and place and sometimes people may need medicine or may need supplements or may need certain things for that. And that's of course very important, but if you're not looking at thyroid, you could be missing a big, big piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So you talk a lot about thyroid type um, and you're kind of building out this whole brand on understanding your thyroid type. I would love for you to talk to us about the different thyroid types, because I feel like we're going to set the stage here for the deeper conversation that I'm really wanting to have. Mm-hmm. In this Definitely. So before we get into that, I just want to make sure that everyone is on the same page about what thyroid hormones are. So we talked about what thyroid does. So I think we're good there, but what really happens and you know, what happens once your thyroid is produced its hormones? Because as you mentioned, you know, people often say, oh yeah, my doctor said my thyroid is fine. And then we say, well, what did they check? Right. They're like, oh, I don't know, just TSH. Right. So let's just talk a little bit about how the thyroid hormone gets produced and how it all works together. Cause that's very, very important. So most doctors that are more conventional will just test TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, but that's one out of nine different hormones. And it just gives us a little bit, right? It's important. I don't want to poo-poo TSH, but it's one out of many and it doesn't give us the whole picture. So TSH is, believe it or not, it's not actually even a thyroid hormone. It's a pituitary hormone. So your pituitary signals the thyroid via the hormone TSH. And then once it produces TSH, the thyroid is going to produce T4 and T3, which are the thyroid hormones. Most of the thyroid hormones that are produced is actually T4. And T4 is not as active, it's inactive. And then T3 is the active hormone. But your body produces about 93, 94% of T4 and only you know 6, 7% of T3. And so most people say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like why would the thyroid produce so little T3, which is active, which you need, like, what's the deal here, right? But our bodies are really smart. So there's always an answer. They have a reason for everything. And because thyroid hormone, like we talked about, is needed for literally everything from our head to our toe, 
If we produce the T3, that active thyroid hormone right in the thyroid, guess what? It's going to be used by the cells right here. And then there's not going to be enough to go around from to our head, our toes, and everywhere in between. So our bodies are so smart. They produce the T4. T4 then has to travel to other areas of the body where then it gets converted into T3. And then it has to go to the cells and absorb into the cells. Now, people might be wondering if they've done a full a thyroid test. They may see things like T4 and T3, but it'll say total T3, total T4, and free T3 and free T4. And I know this gets confusing, but I'll explain this. There is a difference and it is important to do both because a lot of people say, oh, well, I had a T3. I'm like, well, which one? They're like, I don't know, T3, right? So the total T3 and total T4 are what's produced or converted, but then they are bound to protein. So I always say that hormones are like children, right? You're not gonna let your child just walk around on their own. They have to be chaperoned. So it's the same thing. Most hormones are actually bound by these proteins and they're kind of like sitting on the bus. And as they sit on the bus, the bus then travels and takes them to where they need to go. So it takes them to the liver and the gut where they convert to T3. And then it also takes them to the cells where they can get absorbed in. So most of our thyroid hormones are bound. And so they're on the bus. And then when they jump off the bus to get into the cell, they're when they're not on the bus, right? That's what we call free hormones, meaning they're free, they're not bound so that they could get into the cell. But it's important to know that free hormones are only a very, very, very small percentage of our total hormones, which is why even though it's important to test free T4 and free T3, you really can't interpret too much with just those. I mean, it helps, right? But you need to see it together with the total so you can look at the patterns. Um, and then we also have something called T3 uptake, which um, looks at thyroid binding globulin and something called reverse T3. That's almost kind of like an overflow valve. So reverse T3 is sort of like the opposite of T3. So when we have too much T3, sometimes it's not that common, but it can happen. Um, the body will create reverse so that it doesn't um, affect you too negatively, but reverse also could be created because of inflammation or because of stress and things like that. So it is important to look at because it's kind of like the opposition. If you have a lot of reverse, then your own T3 may not be used even if you do have a good amount of it. So I hope this makes sense um, in terms of how they're all related and why you need all the hormones aside from just TSH. And then um, when you have this, then we could talk more about thyroid types. So essentially, thyroid is not a one-size-fits-all approach. And if your doctor tells you that it is, then it's time to probably get a new doctor, right? Um, because you know your TSH could possibly be off. And if your TSH is elevated, that typically means that there's less thyroid hormone and you perhaps may need thyroid medicine. But that's just one type, which is the high TSH type. Some of the other types are if let's say you're someone who doesn't convert your T4 to T3 very well, because remember, you don't produce T3 very much of it, at least in your thyroid, you have to convert it. And not everyone can convert it. It gets converted in the liver and the gut and you need certain nutrients for that conversion to happen. And there's certain autoimmunity things that can affect that conversion negatively as well. And so for some people, if that conversion doesn't happen, you don't have enough T3. So if you don't have enough T3, taking a conventional thyroid medicine like Synthroid levothyroxine, which is T4, is really not going to do anything, right? So that's not going to help. And usually people who don't have enough T3 
tend to have completely normal TSHs. So if they go to an endocrinologist or their primary and they say, hey, check my thyroid and they look at TSH, they say, oh, you're fine. Everything's fine. Your TSH is perfect at, you know, 1.5 or something like that, right? Um, and if, when they find out that they have low T3, their support would be very specific to that versus what someone would do if they're a high TSH type. So help people understand why doctors often only do the TSH check when they're checking thyroid? Okay. So I think there's a few different um, reasons for that. The first is, I mean, that is the standard of care, right? Because hypothyroidism is defined as a TSH that is above the lab's range, which by the way, the lab's range, the high end of TSH is 4.5. It used to be five. They've lowered it to 4.5 though, depending on where you are in the country or in the world, there may be a little variance too, anywhere from four to 4.75 at this point. So, you know, you could be 4.1 and be considered okay in California and be considered high in New York, right? Depending on what lab. Um, but that's the definition of hypothyroidism. So when doctors are looking, you know, and if you look at textbooks, right, you don't have hypothyroidism unless your TSH is above range. But we know the ranges are very wide and optimally, we really want TSH below three. And if you're someone who's taking thyroid medicine in an ideal world, you'd be even closer to two because the thyroid medicine should, in theory, get the TSH down lower. Um, but because the textbooks say, hey, unless you're over four or 4.5, whatever the range is, you're not hypothyroid, it's kind of an easy thing for a doctor to say, well, your TSH is okay. So I'm not thinking any more down the line because the book says this, your TSH is fine, then it must be, you must be depressed. You must be crazy. You must have, you know, this, that, and the other, you must be stressed. It's not your thyroid. And, you know, obviously I, I don't want to say anything negative about anyone, but I do find that, you know, when I speak to doctors who are more conventional and I even sometimes ask them, you know, we'll have maybe a client or a patient in common and I'll say, Hey, would you mind just running a T3 for this person? And I'll say, Oh, well, that's not necessary. You know, and I would sometimes go and ask them, well, can you tell, and obviously I understand, anyway, this is what I do, why it's necessary. But sometimes I'll say to them, well, you know, would you be able to tell me why you feel it's not necessary, right? Like, because, you know, I want to start a conversation and I would just want to see how we can work together. You know, I'll say, oh, well, because it doesn't matter. And I'll say to them, okay, well, why do you think it doesn't matter? Like, oh, well, that's only if someone's in a hospital or this or that. Like, they just don't understand. And there isn't really a lot of education about this in medical school. The textbooks are written in a way where, you know, because there's all these feedback loops, right? So in an ideal case, if TSH is okay, it should signal T4 to be produced. And T4 should, in theory, convert to T3. And T3 should then get back on the bus, go to the cells and get absorbed into the cell, right? It's kind of like, you know, when it rains, the water hits the grass and the grass grows and then flowers grow. And then, you know, everything is kind of working, but sometimes we have no rain for a while, right? Or sometimes there's certain toxins in the environment that affect the grass. And instead of grass, we get a bunch of weeds and no flowers, right? So it's the same kind of idea. Like, yes, in theory, it's supposed to work this way, but in today's day and age, it just doesn't for at least half, like I would say even more than 50% of people. Mm hmm. So one of the things I want to mention here is if you're working with your doctor and he, and he or she has told you um, that your thyroid is normal and you've only run TSH and you want to get out of the gridlock because it's pretty much a gridlock conversation from a patient perspective. Right. Mm -hmm. We actually have 
Um, if you'll go to healingrosie.com and look in the show notes, we'll we'll put it down here. We actually have a coupon code where you can get a free, free T3 lab test run. You'll pay the $8 lab draw fee, um, but that's it. But you can go get your free T3 run and see for yourself where that free T3 is. And if the three T3, maybe you want to share optimal ranges here, Ina, but if the free T3 is low, sometimes you can take that into your doctor and say, hey, I know you pulled my TSH, but I just went and had my free T3 pulled and look at this number. It's low. You know, most, I don't say most, a lot of doctors do know what the optimal ranges are. They just won't run the lab, right, to get you there. And that can be a way that you can advocate for yourself a little bit more, but um, I want to make sure that everyone knows that you can get a free, free T3 lab test to be able to look into this more yourself. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great service for sure. And, you know, I think a lot of doctors really just look at lab ranges. I don't think they look at optimal ranges. So, I mean, some may know if they're more functional, but I think from a conventional perspective, you know, the lab range for T3 is about 2.3 to 4.2. So unless you're mm-hmm. below 2.3 and it's not actually written as like a big L, you know, for low and like in red or in blue, sometimes they flag it. They're not even going to really, you know. Yeah. So you could, if you're below 2.3, you'll get a clinical hypothyroid um, diagnosis, but then you'll know for yourself if you're below three or 3.2, it kind of depends on the reference range and stuff. But if you're mm-hmm you're low, you can see for yourself, I need to find someone that can help me with this. And it's not going to be my doctor. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, there are ways. So, you know, if you're low in T3, yes, of course, there's T3 medicine, but that's not the only answer, right? There's so many ways to naturally support T3. And I know that's something that you do in your program. It's something that I do in my program and a lot of functional practitioners um, work on. So, you know, there is liver support, gut support. Again, it has to be very specific and timed and sequenced in a way where it's step-by-step, but, you know, there's a lot you can do. And in some situations, if it's very, 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 very low, sometimes medicine can be helpful, but typically we usually try the natural approaches first. So if your doctor's saying, no, I'm not going to give you medicine. I don't even want to look at this. I don't want you to feel stuck that, okay, that's it, right? There's all of these other things that you can look into and do. Yeah. All right. So you set a good foundation here. Why don't you talk to us about these thyroid types? Right. So we have the high TSH type. We have the low T3 type. There is another type, which I call the unavailable hormone type. And this is where you have both low free T4 and free T3. And that's why it's so important to look at everything if you can and if you can get all the labs, because if you're just looking at things like randomly, like this number or that number, it doesn't always, um, you can't always get the pattern. And so typically for the unavailable hormone types, this is, um, it's kind of a tricky one. We see this a lot for people who like sometimes it's post IVF treatment or someone who's been on birth control pills or, you know, even a lot of people who have fertility issues, there could be PCOS, people may be experiencing irregular or heavy periods. And there is other hormones that are connected to this type. And for this type, a doctor would hardly ever notice because TSH is normal. Even total hormones may often be normal, but it's the free T4 and free T3 that are low. And taking thyroid medicine for this type is not going to help because you. it's not that you don't have enough thyroid hormone. It's there. It's just literally unavailable to your cells. So, you know, the approach for this would be then again, different than the TSH type versus the T3 type. Now, the other type that I see all the time and 
it's, you know, I'm very active on Instagram when we talk about this a lot. And I can't tell you, like if I had a penny for every time someone said to me, oh my gosh, that's me, that's me, I'm going through this now. And this is what I call the Hashimoto's all normal type. Now, before we go through that, I just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page about Hashimoto's. So just in case you may not be familiar, Hashimoto's is the autoimmune disease that affects the thyroid. So the immune system gets confused and the immune system accidentally thinks your thyroid is something bad and foreign and it starts attacking it. And what's really important to know about Hashimoto's is that it's the Hashimoto's itself attacks the thyroid, right? And your thyroid can become slow. So it's important to support the thyroid, but by supporting the thyroid, you're not necessarily doing anything for Hashimoto's, right? Because it's two different things. And so this type is so common and I get so angry every time I hear this from people that their doctor said this, but um, so it's called a Hashimoto's old normal type. So what this means is that they have thyroid antibodies. So the way that Hashimoto's is diagnosed is if you have antibodies to either thyroid peroxidase or TPO or thyroglobulin antibodies. Now you can have antibodies to one or the other or both. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't make your Hashimoto better or worse if you have antibodies to one or the other or both. It just either of them or both mean Hashimoto's. So if you have antibodies, but all your labs are normal and really normal, right? Your TSH is in range or T4, T3, the free, the total, like everything is okay. Even with these optimal ranges, this is where doctors say, you're fine. You Sometimes they don't even tell people they have Hashimoto's. They'll just say you have thyroid antibodies and people have to then go research and connect it and figure out, oh, wait, thyroid antibodies mean Hashimoto's. I can't tell you how well people will um, DM me on Instagram and say, can you just, can I ask you a question? You know, I have thyroid antibodies. My doctor says that I may not have Hashimoto's. I'm like, mm, you know, I can't diagnose you obviously over Instagram, but you know, the definition is if you have thyroid antibodies, you have Hashimoto. That's what it means. It's very black and white. And it, for some reason, I don't know why there's practitioners that make this such a gray area because it's not great. If you have antibodies, you have Hashimoto's. The only gray could be that if the antibodies are there, but they're at a very low level, that could be a little gray, right? Because typically for TPO, anything over 35, it's considered positive. So if someone is at like a 15, you know, it could be a little gray because they're there, but it's not so much, right? But if you're over 35, and for most people that I connect with, you know, their antibodies are way through the roof and they're still unsure if they have Hashimoto's. But yes, if you have antibodies, you have Hashimoto's. And so the, the frustrating thing that they hear is you just have antibodies. There's nothing we can do. Your labs are normal. So we wait and we see. And this is what happened to me 20 years ago. We wait and we see. Eventually, your Hashimoto's or your immune system, right, will destroy your thyroid. And when that happens, then we'll mm -hmm. give you thyroid medicine. But right now, you don't need medicine. Everything's fine. Isn't it maddening? I feel my blood boil just listening to you say oh, that because like, I, I've heard it so much. Everyone hears it. It's we wait and we see, we wait and we see as your body just deteriorates and things get so bad because the standard of care basically is once it gets bad enough, I can prescribe or we can do surgery. And I heard that over and over in my journey too. And it's just like, there's not a focus on health or quality of life. You know, there's not a, there's not a sense in conventional medicine of taking care of people to help them maintain their health. So if you have heard this from your doctor, I think you should be hearing alarm bells in your mind that you need to find someone who's going to support you in taking care of your health because it's it's really scary when I think about what would have happened to me if I wouldn't have had I'm feisty, you know, I was triggered mm -hmm. right away when my doctor started telling me, you know, 
We don't know what causes it. You can Google it. We'll watch it. We can do surgery if it comes back. You know, I knew I had to figure out something else. But for a lot of people, when they hear that, they take it as gospel. Like, okay, well, I guess I just have to wait and see what happens, right? And there's so many stories of women, even famous women. You know, we hear Gilda Radner and she was Saturday Night Live comedian who was having all these issues in her body. And she had... um she went to tons of specialists. They put her on antidepressants. Eventually, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer stage four, but she was searching for answers for probably two or three years before she found out that she had ovarian cancer and ended up killing her, right? So this whole wait and see thing, you already got me started. I just need to stop because, you know, you have permission to ask questions and to find another doctor if they're telling you to wait and see. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, when it comes to thyroid specifically in Hashimoto's, you know, the reason why they say wait and see, I mean, it, 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 obviously they're not purposely trying to make you feel bad, right? Or be sick. Right. But from a conventional perspective, they just don't know, right? Because if you think about it in like a very black and white sense, right? When your thyroid is functioning well, right? They're not, you don't need medicine necessarily, right? They're not going to give you medicine, but there is not this understanding that the immune system is destroying the thyroid and that we actually have something we can do to support the immune system, right? Because whenever I think conventionally people think about any autoimmunity, right? Be it a Hashimoto's or arthritis or MS or anything like that, we always think about the organ being attacked, right? The thyroid or the joint or the brain. And so we always think, okay, what medicine can we use for those organs? So when they're attacked that we can like heal them or help them or speed them up or whatnot. But in more of a functional approach, right? We're always thinking, what's the root? Where's it coming from, right? It's the immune system that got confused and is attacking the thyroid. So let's teach the immune system. Hey, immune system, like thyroid is good. Like, you know, settle down, <laughs> don't like fret so much. And, you know, we do that from a functional perspective where we look at immune triggers and immune triggers are things like stressors and the foods that we eat and the infections we may have and the toxins that we may be, um, you know, that we may accumulate it, right? So that's where like the metals and all the mercury can come in and all the different viruses. There's so many things, but again, from a conventional perspective, they just don't look at it that way. They don't know. So they're not purposely trying to make you sick. They just literally don't know what to do about the immune system. Thankfully though, there's so much we can do. Yeah. They don't, they don't take, they're not taking responsibility for that. They don't make it their responsibility to understand things that are outside of maybe the scope of care training. Mm -hmm. I have mixed feelings about it. I, I empathize and think, I mean, I get it. I get that's how they were trained. And from the, the lens of their practice and what they were trained to do, they're following instructions, right? But as someone who makes the commitment to do no harm and is, you know, committed to this field of medicine, it also infuriates me because of course, as a doctor and someone who's seeing patients all the time, does, isn't there a part of you that's like, this does not make sense. You know, I'm telling my patients to wait. And over time, I'm watching my patients get really bad diseases and die. And in the course of their care with me, I did nothing to support them in preventing what ultimately happened, you know? So mm. I, I, I'm not one to blame, but I am, I am fierce on yeah. take responsibility. And if, if a person has not made it their mission in life to understand how to help you heal, you need to find someone who has made it their mission. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who are more conventional that have become more integrative. And like, when that happens, they literally like, I hear this so much. I say, I literally was 
thinking that I like, what am I going to do? How, like, I can't help anyone. And when they learn more of the functional approach, they're like, oh my gosh, for the first time in like 25 years of practice or 30 years of practice, I feel like I can actually help someone, which yeah. is like such an amazing feeling, you know? Yeah, but, absolutely. So, and, and I think a lot of doctors are kind of going out um, this way. And, you know, so there's more and more people that are doing this work, which is great because there's so many people that need it, you know? Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about what we do if we have the antibodies, because as you said, if you're taking thyroid hormone to support the hypothyroid state, right? It's not doing anything for the Hashimoto's. How does someone go about managing or even eradicating? I know people who've completely healed from their Hashis. How do we do that? So uh, with Hashimoto's being an autoimmune disease, right? There's no kind of cure, but you can bring it into remission and you can bring your antibodies down and you can bring it to remission where the thyroid is not attacked nearly as much, right? Sometimes we can't completely stop the attack, but we can slow it down significantly, which in my book is a win um, for sure. Totally. So the big thing is that we look at the things that trigger the immune system, right? Because it's the immune system that got confused. So it's not about the thyroid as much as it is getting the immune system to calm down. So there's four kind of categories where we can have triggers. The first is stress. The second is food. The third is infections and the fourth is toxins. And then of course, within those categories, there's a lot of different things that go into that. So for example, with stress, stress is something that is both physical and emotional. So of course, there's different situations and circumstances and we have stressors that go on in our life. But sometimes two people can be exposed to the exact same stress, but the way they see it, Right. And how they deal with it is going to be different. So it's going to affect them differently. So it's not how much stress you have, but it's first, what are you doing to manage the stress when outside of that stress? And then within the stress, how are you thinking about it? How are you reframing? How are you handling it? And there's so much out there from affirmations to other like nervous system calming techniques to meditations to, you know, all of these different mindset exercises. And I'm sure there's like a gazillion courses out there from, you know, Tony Robbins to, you know, you name it of just all of the different ways that we can kind of reframe, rethink and manage it. So I think that's huge. And, you know, one step at a time, right? Like you may not be able to do every stress management technique, but, you know, even if you just do a few things and incorporate into your day, it makes such, such a difference. And I always tell people don't underestimate the power of stress because, you know, we think, oh yeah, everyone's stressed. But when your nervous system is upregulated from the stress, literally everything in your body is going to work backwards. Like you can't heal, you can't do anything. So that makes a really, really big difference. And then the other thing from the stress perspective is the physical aspect of the stress. So for example, blood sugar should always be as balanced as possible. And a lot of people don't realize that if our blood sugar is dysregulated, meaning maybe we're eating a lot of carbs and aren't balancing it with protein or a good fat, our blood sugar is doing this. And when the body has to balance this up, down, up, down, that's a huge physical stressor on the body. Huge. And just by balancing blood sugar, we can eliminate, you know, 20, 30, sometimes even 50% of the stress that our body's under. So that makes a really big difference. And then when we look at food, and of course, this is going to be somewhat individual because we are all different, but there are certain foods that are kind of known to be triggers, especially for Hashimoto's like gluten, for example, because so many people with Hashimoto's and other autoimmune diseases can have the, um, celiac genetics, um, meaning that your body is just, it doesn't mean you have celiac disease, but that your body is just 
um, genetically not predisposed to process gluten. And so every time you eat it, the body's going to attack it. And then there is something called molecular mimicry where the body can confuse gluten with other proteins that lie on different organs. And so the body can accidentally start attacking the thyroid because there's just a little similarity. You don't need a lot. There's just going to be a couple of similar proteins and the body can get confused with that. Dairy could be another big thing. Now for some, it could be grains or it could be lectins, which are... um, these, they call them kind of like anti-nutrients and foods that can be problematic. But it doesn't mean that every single person needs to be on a paleo or AIP diet, right? Some people are okay with grains, but you know, I find gluten and dairy typically are the most helpful to avoid and almost everyone can benefit from that. You know, and then we could do food sensitivities, you know, we could do elimination diets just to see. And initially I do find that it's helpful to take certain things out just to kind of let things calm down. But for many people, they are able to put a lot of those foods back, especially as we heal the gut and support the body. Because I think sometimes, you know, people are worried, oh my gosh, like, am I ever going to be able to eat, you know, a rice or, you know, a cookie ever again, right? And for most people, yes, like made in the right way with the right ingredients, absolutely. You know, I think gluten and dairy are kind of like the big staples, but other stuff might need to be eliminated at first. But for, I mean, I know for me, I was able to introduce and I'm okay with it, but everyone is a little bit different. So talk a little bit about what it looks like to reintroduce. Um, This is a, this is a very common, so there's a couple schools of thought on, how to manage food sensitivities mm-hmm. amongst our colleagues. I've had this conversation with lots of um, our colleagues in the space. Um, food sensitivity testing by some is recommended as one of the first things you do whenever you're working with a new patient and you're, you know, really trying to get them optimized. Um, you know, there's some people that recommend you must do food sensitivity testing right away. And then there's other people that say, um, actually, no, don't do food sensitivity testing right away do an elimination diet, maybe you go go full AIP for six or eight weeks. And then um, you start reintroducing foods one by one to see how your body's going to respond to it and manage it that way and do food sensitivity testing. If even after doing an elimination diet, you know, you haven't eradicated the issue. So I'd love for you just to add some color to this conversation and share with what's worked in your practice, because you've been working with people on this for almost two decades. Yeah. Yeah. So, and um, I've actually done it a few different ways because, you know, as with anything else, that's what they call it practice, right? You try different things. Um, When I first started practicing almost 20 years ago, I was running food sensitivity testing pretty early on. But what I realized was that when people's guts are a mess, which a lot of times they are, and we may have all types of dysbiosis from candida to parasites to H. pylori to other infections, and there's going to be more leaky gut. I was getting people reactive to everything. And again, not to say that that wasn't true. I mean, it was for the time, but sometimes it's just very hard to avoid everything. And when there's leaky gut and everything is reacting, it just, the test almost feels overwhelming. Like how are we even going to manage this? Plus also, you know, these tests aren't cheap and I tend to, uh, I needed to run it again to see how things were improving. And it's just a lot of money that people would have to spend. So now what I do, and I have been doing this for, for a while now, is you know after taking a really, really detailed health history, because you could kind of tell based on that, like what the issues could be, you know, how many antibiotics they've been on, what other symptoms they have. Typically, um, we do an elimination, like you mentioned. And um, while we do that, we do stool testing. 
Uh, and then for my uh, virtual step-by-step program, we're doing, there's different questionnaires to figure out what type of dysbiosis that you have. And the benefit there is that we're not spending a lot of money on tests initially, but we're doing an elimination diet uh, or just a cleaner diet sometimes. And this is also based on what the person needs, but it could be either a low lectin diet or AIP or, you know, more towards like a paleo. And, you know, because sometimes people also know, you know, eggs really don't work well with me. And then people say, you know, I think they're okay. You know, so we include those, but we definitely eliminate gluten, dairy, corn, soy, um, sugar, and a lot of processed foods. And as we do that, you know, they already start to feel better just because there's less toxins going in. And then we typically support the gut. Um, you know, usually I'll do a stool test and organic acid test, and I'll take a look at what's there, if there's yeast or other infections. If, um, you know, sometimes if people don't have a budget for testing, you know, we could do it through questionnaires, which I do that in my virtual program as well to see, you know, the level of dysbiosis they have. And then I pick and choose a protocol for them based on that. And then once we support the gut, and we usually do a little bit of liver support at that that time, then we start to introduce some foods and then typically we'll do food sensitivity testing. So basically it's the second option. I'm also um, of the opinion that we really don't want to uh, eliminate and reduce too much for too long, just because it is so important that we have a nice diverse microbiome and the way it's not just about taking probiotics. I mean, yes, those help, and yes, we have a lot of things on the market that are super strong and, you know, these really heavy duty probiotics, but it's not the same as the natural bugs because you can never replace everything, right? Like you can have a thousand billion, you know, organisms, you're still not going to absorb the same way because you have so many more other bugs. So it's about eating different types of foods and it's plant fibers, right? So, you know, meat is great, but meat isn't going to diversify your gut. It's the fiber from all the different plants with so vegetables and beans. Um, those are the things that are going to help to diversify. So I really just want to make sure that we're not on a very restricted diet for more than six months. And then we start to put things in, you know, sometimes maybe we're not able to put grains in, right? Or gluten, that's okay. But then we see, okay, well, what vegetables can we put in? Even if you don't like a certain vegetable, you know, can we just do a tiny, tiny amount of it, right? Just to get like all these different plant fibers in there. We want as much of a diverse diet as we can. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about in Healing Rosie University and in the community um, around the food piece is if you have food sensitivities and you've had to eliminate them from your diet for a long period of time. I mean, there's people that have for years not been able to eat bananas or avocados or whatever. There is something else going on. It is not food sensitivities is not a long-term strategy for maintaining your health. It is a short-term strategy for bridging things so that your body can heal, right? But if your body's not healing, you need to get to sleuthing, go deeper and figure out what is actually going on at a deeper level. There's likely some infections and toxicity that has not been uncovered and you need to uncover those so that you can actually get rid of them because you run the danger when you eliminate foods for long periods of time from your diet, you run the danger of permanently compromising your microbiome because mm -hmm. all the good gut bugs die, right? So this yep. is an area where we have to be careful and I don't feel like people get adequately um, informed around eliminating foods from their diet. This is a really important conversation that we're having right here because, you know, long-term elimination is not healthy. Another piece to this that um, I find myself talking about a lot because it was profound for me as a, as a patient hearing it is the importance of running the right food sensitivity tests. I was interviewing Dr. Peter Osborne for the Radical Healing Masterclass that we did 
um, a few months ago. And one of the things that he said that I've actually heard several other practitioners in our space say too, is that you need to make sure that you're doing lymphocyte testing for food sensitivity testing. And that is the um, testing to see what you're actually creating the white blood cell response to in the body instead of the other tests, food sensitivity tests that are IgG or, or IgM or, you know, they're not, they're not fully testing to see what, what your body's actually mounting a response to. People can often in food sensitivity tests come back with, just like you said, Ina, everything is causing an allergic reaction for me, right? So you want to make sure you're doing the right test. Um, and the test that you want to do is the ELISA food sensitivity testing. They're the ones that do the lymphocyte testing and um, can be really helpful to see what, what are you actually allergic to? We actually have someone in the Killing Rosie University Accelerator who's struggling with this food sensitivity thing long-term. One of the reasons that she wanted to do the deeper program is because she knows that there's something else going on that hasn't been uncovered, but she's never done the lymphocyte testing. So we're going to run that for her just to see what she's actually allergic to. Like what is the body actually mounting a response to? Because it's likely that a lot of us have done these food sensitivity tests and we think we're allergic to a lot of things that actually our body isn't mounting a mounting a response to from an immune perspective. So, yeah, and there's so many out there, and you know, I've with certain labs, I won't mention names, but I've sent the same sample with two different names and gotten two different results. Yep. Yeah, it happens all the time. I hear about it all the time too from lots of people in our space, and it makes food sensitivities this area where it's like, well, do you even trust the tests, right? I think right. that's why a lot of people have gone to the lymphocyte testing because yeah. otherwise it's really challenging to to know if what you're recommending the patient does is actually helpful to them and it could be harmful because they're they're not eating as diverse of a diet and maybe it's not they're really not getting any benefit from that so yeah it's tricky yeah. It is. It is tricky. It's a, that's why, yeah, you have to know your labs. Well, who do you use if you don't mind sharing for your for tests? lymphocyte testing? It's mm-hmm. the Elisa test, Elisa Act. I think is the right, but what what lab um, of, the, of their panels? They, they are they have a ton of different food sensitivity panels. Elisa is the lab. Oh, okay. Just because there's a lot of Elisa tests out there, so you're yeah, that's they the have, lab you're using. They have yeah, that's the lab, and they have several food sensitivity panels. It depends on how deep you want to go. Um, how okay. much do you want to test? Right, you know, food sensitivity food sensitivity tests can get really expensive. You can push a thousand dollars if you want to be. If you want to test everything oh, under the sun. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. some of the Cyrex panels and the Vibram panels are definitely up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep going here with this conversation. We've been talking about autoimmune issues and how you treat. Um, and we talked about blood work. Um, I'm curious for you to talk a little bit more about your program. Um, discover your thyroid type. What? Is there like a quiz or something to help people figure out what their type is? And then how are you helping people break this down? Sure. Well, so the the free training that I have, um, it's an hour training where we get into really understanding how like what a thyroid type is, which, you know, we already got into a little bit here. And then I walk people through when they have their labs, what to look for to figure out their thyroid type. Um, And then, you know, we talk in there more. I also teach people more about the twofold approach for Hashimoto's and, you know, really how we can look at this from a very whole body perspective. And then, um, you know, for some people, especially if they have a doctor who is 
willing to work with them and it's open, which is wonderful, right? They can then take that to their doctor and their doctor will help to guide them. And, you know, the training is there to basically give them as much information as I can. And then for others, you know, that may not have a doctor or the doctor is just really not willing to work with them, but they know that there's something there and they want to really just take this and take this to the next level and expedite their results so they're not spending months and months and months and thousands of dollars and spinning their wheels and trying to figure it out. Then I also have a step-by-step program where it's customized to them and their thyroid type. And I take them through step-by-step exactly what to do to support their thyroid type. And if they also have Hashimoto's to then support Hashimoto's with this twofold approach. Yeah, it's exciting to see that there's resources like this available now for women who are struggling because I remember what it was like a decade ago. Yeah, There was nothing mm-hmm. whenever I found the natural health, paleo, ancestral health space, there was a lot of, I learned a ton. It was very helpful. I was very empowered by it. I learned a lot about circadian biology. That's when I started dialing in my sleep and wearing the amber glasses and, you know, all the things that I still do to this day, but when it comes to women and their issues, women's hormones, this was not a conversation anyone was having. Our leaders were people who are awesome friends. I love them in their work. It was people like Mark Sisson, Ben Greenfield, and Dave Asprey, and Rob Wolf, and you know, guys. I remember yeah. ask. I remember asking them, you know, at events and different things that I was participating in at that time about, you know, you're doing this keto diet and you're getting ripped abs and you know, you're getting these amazing results and I'm trying it. And there's a lot of my colleagues in the space that are trying these strategies you're saying, and we're not getting the same results. And it was like, yeah, women are harder. (laughs) And that was kind of the end of the conversation, right? Right. Like women are harder. Anyway, next question. (laughs) I remember feeling so frustrated. It was a big reason why I wanted to start healing Rosie was because like this this conversation is not going away. 70% of the people in this larger community are women. And we need to be having conversations about our hormones and how those are affecting our bodies and about these different diet types. You know, we're doing keto diets and intermittent fasting and all of this stuff. And it's not one size fits all for women. Our bodies are very, we're little, we're little snowflakes, mm-hmm. every single one of us. And it's important that we're understanding how to look at our labs, what kind of um, care, health care that we need, what kind of practitioners we need on our side, what kind of you know lifestyle to develop. It's important that we're understanding how to uncover these toxic stressors because it's why everyone ultimately gets stuck because there is some kind of toxic stressor that they haven't uncovered. They've They've not done enough work on their trauma, you know? So that's the other thing we didn't kind of touch on that, but that's a whole other thing when it comes to stress, right? It's our thoughts, our beliefs, our traumas, because all of that is going to reside physically in our body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, interestingly enough too, with thyroid stuff, you know, our thyroid is in our throat, right? It's the fifth chakra. It's our expression, you know? And so one of the things that we talk about a lot, um, and I do a lot of mind body stuff in my step-by-step program, because I literally work at addressing thyroid from every angle because everything is so important, right? But it's like, is there something that you're afraid to say that you feel like you need to say or you want to say, right? Mm -hmm. There's also a big connection with shame and autoimmunity, specifically Hashimoto's. And shame is not necessarily something that has to be this big thing. I mean, it could even be, you know, an adult when you were younger, just telling you, you're a bad girl, right? Or a teacher saying, you're not being a good boy. And it sounds so trivial, but... It, it is shaming, right? And that shame, it, it kind of creates this, you know, sometimes when you feel embarrassed, you get that like 
the heat, you know, you feel kind of hot inside. And a lot of times you could feel right here in the throat. Um, so there's a big, you know, just past shame, which can, it may not seem traumatic, but could be part of the trauma can affect it as well. Yeah. I remember being a kid and feeling like there were certain things that I couldn't say, right. It wasn't safe in our family to say certain things or speak up about things and that conditioning, I definitely took it with me into adulthood. Right. And especially in my twenties, um, was very challenged around speaking my truth and saying what I needed to say. And fortunately I'm way past that. I'm sure there are people that wish I would go back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much conditioning and this is why, this is why childhood trauma is very relevant. We think, but that happened so long ago, but it conditions you to interact with the world in a certain way, right? It still lives inside your nervous system and we have to address that and find ways to break free, you know, to create new neural pathways and new patterns in our life that are more life-giving and supportive, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. all of these are really important, really, really important. Yeah. Well, we sure. are going to have links in the show notes to all the great resources from Ina. You can find her Instagram and her website. We will have um, a link to this, um, this webinar, Discover Your Thyroid Type. Um, so that you guys can go learn a little bit more from her. Um, her work is amazing. And I really love how committed she has been to helping people with this thyroid issue. And not only the thyroid issue, you know, she's really well-versed in, all right, we see problems here. Let's start looking for this, the toxic stressors that are contributing to this. And it's really an important part of being able to create healing, set the conditions for healing to happen in the body, not hyper-focusing just on, on one piece of this puzzle. So thank you so much, Ina, for chatting with us today and sharing all of your awesome wisdom. This has been fantastic. Of course. Well, thank you so much for having me and, you know, really back right back at you with all the work that you're doing and this podcast and your Facebook group and all of the education that you have and, you know, what an advocate you are, not just for yourself, but for thousands and thousands and thousands of women that really need your support. So thank you for all the work that you do. Yeah. Well, it's an honor for both of us, I know, to hold this space and make this contribution. So Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you very soon. Bye for now. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you're feeling more empowered to overcome your flabby, foggy, and fatigued and to reclaim your life. If you haven't subscribed yet, don't forget to hit that subscribe button right now so you don't miss any of our episodes. We have some awesome shows coming right up. I love reading your reviews and comments too. They inspire me and encourage other Rosies to hang out with us and learn all these amazing strategies for healing and living our best lives. Till next time, sister. Bye.